Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This hobby has turned into something uh, very crazy. I just drove in from Palm Springs and three Max says, boy, my arms are tired. I can't do jokes like that because I'm sitting across from Don Rio, who is one of the greatest uh, writers, creators, and showrunners, and executive producers of all time. So you can't, you can't make jokes in front of Don. Like you know, what part of the McNugget does the chicken come from? Or you know, Gilligan's Island. I just don't understand. You know, they could make a bamboo blender, but they couldn't fix a hole in a boat this big. You can't, you can't do jokes like that around Don. Rio. But anyway, so I'm here. Thank you so much for all the emails and everything that you have done for this podcast in terms of your support. It's it's been absolutely incredible, and I'm very, very grateful. I would like to tell a story that is on my mind as I look at Don Rio, which is, as you all know, I don't really know what I'm going to say until I, I sit across from him. As I sit across from him, I think of a story that I may or may not have told her when I was on a More Stories episode, because Don Rio is a part of my history and means a lot to me, because... When I was a young manager, I tried to get things going and I tried to be a producer on certain shows and I was a producer on certain shows, but the best credit you can ever have on a show where you have, I would like to say you at least have a vote or at least some kind of influence on something uh, is the executive producer credit. 
And I'd always wanted to be involved and get my start in that area. And Jay Moore gave me the opportunity to do that on a show called Action, which was a very, very special show. To this day, I would say it's probably the best show that I ever worked on in my life and way, 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 way ahead of its time. And if you've never seen it, find it, go to Amazon or do whatever you have to do to get it because it was a tremendous show about a character who is a movie studio executive or a producer, a behemoth in the mold of Joel Silver, who was an executive producer on the show, along with uh, Chris Thompson, who I would say, if I were a betting man, is a genius, a tortured genius, a guy who that year unbelievably got two shows on the air at the same time and was walking back and forth from studio to studio, which was Ladies Man on CBS with Alfred Molina and Action on Fox. And Action was a show that was very, very edgy, very, very edgy. And Ladies Man was in the heyday of CBS and Les Moonves and was very, very mainstream, although it did have you know, the kind of two and a half men kind of edginess to it, but in a mainstream way. And the thing I remember most is that I was allowed when we did this deal, and this was a very unique deal, and I should talk about this a little bit. And if you've heard part of this, please bear with me. But the process of, of when you're a manager and you have clients who are doing movies even if they're not making millions and millions of dollars doing movies, when you're sitting across from Tom Cruise at the commissary or Jennifer Aniston in New York and you're doing scenes with Kevin Spacey or even if you are making Schedule F, which is $65,000 for the run of the picture or minimum wage, you feel like you're in the game. And you're doing scenes across from these great people. And, and Jay was doing amazing scenes across from some great people. And he was making some good money, but he wasn't making millions and millions of dollars. And I was approached with the script called Action with Chris Thompson and Joel Silver. And they said, we want Jay to do the show. And it had been turned down at HBO because HBO wouldn't give Sony the deal points that they wanted. But Doug Herzog, who was the president of Fox, did. And so Jay told me he didn't want to do television. Stop sending him the script. Stop sending him the script. And I went and I told him, look, you know, just let's take the meeting with Joel Silver. Let's just do it. And we take the meeting with Joel Silver. And Jay is the kind of guy where there's no filter. And again, please excuse me if you've heard part of this. So we go into the meeting and Joel is just he's wired there's you go into joel silver's office this bungalow and there are posters of every movie he's done everywhere you can't if you were walking on the walls you wouldn't be able to find a clean place to stand i mean there's just stuff everywhere there's figurines of movies done and he had this big projection television one of the first movie dimension televisions in the corner of his office and he starts pulling all the blinds down before he's really saying anything and and he says, I want to show you something. And he presses the remote control 
and he plays the trailer for The Matrix, which no one's ever seen before. And he's got these speakers that are so loud. And it's like the figurines are shaking, the wall's shaking, the blinds are shaking, and it finishes, and the lights go up, and you're just like, wow, this is incredible. And Jay and I are just sitting there. And then Joel just starts pacing. Chris Thompson's sitting in the chair, but Joel just starts pacing. God, I can't, I can't believe, can't believe you don't want to do this show. I can't believe you don't want to do this show. And I, I, I was in awe of one thing, because I always thought successful people start with the positive. They don't start with like, I can't believe you're not going to do this. I thought they start with like, hey, let's talk about all the positive things about the show, and then. When you say, look, thanks, but I'm not interested. I can't believe you're not going to. But Joel just cut through the thing and anticipated Jay back and forth. And Jay was like, look, Joel, sit down, relax. I, I just I just like the movies. You know, I don't want to do television. It will take me out of the movies. He's like, listen. What, do you, what kind of movies you like to do? I like to do movies that are smart and intelligent and whatever. And Joel stands up and he yells, what are you? What are you, fucking Parker Posey? What are you, what are you, I can put you in great movies. I can put you in great movies. Not just transvestite hooker number four. I'm talking about great movies, great roles, whatever. And Jay, true to form, in a story I'm going to tell in a second with Don, has no filter. And so he's looking at the posters on the wall and, and, you know, and Joel's like, look at all these movies I've done. And Jay points to a poster on the wall and says, well, Joel, you, you did Xanadu. <laughs> and Joel stood up and he pointed a finger. I'm fucking proud of Xanadu. <laughs> and that's how the meeting starts. But Chris worked it together and we figured it out and we made a deal to do the show. And I got to be an executive producer for the first time. And and I thought to myself, here I am with the late Ted Demi, who directed the pilots, executive producer, Chris Thompson, who, you know, worked on, I think, The Naked Truth before that and had done so many great shows and was a fascinating guy. And uh, Don, Don Rio and... And and myself and and I thought when I get on this set, these people are gonna treat me like shit. They're gonna treat me like I am an insignificant piece of shit because I haven't done anything. And you know, I know my place. My place is just to make sure Jay stays together and and is happy and whatever and is a liaison between these people in the beginning. And but true to form, like everybody treated me like a million bucks and like I belonged even though I didn't belong and it was a great feeling and I learned from Ted and I learned from Joel and I learned from Chris but I especially learned a lot from Don Rio my guest today and what I learned from Don Rio is that no bad ever came from calm calm is what takes you where you want to go in the toughest situations and the most stressful things. And my fascinating aspect of studying Don Rio, and I say studying, I didn't just sit there watching him like some kind of stalker, but just studying the way he handled his business and he handled the writers and the work ethic he had. 
was just incredible. I, I never saw him lose his temper. I saw him want to lose his temper, but I never saw him lose his temper. And I just want to insert one little thing about Don Rio so you know what kind of a worker Don Rio is. I remember I called him about, I don't know, five years ago. And it was a really, really nice conversation. I think I was talking about how the season was over for my wife and kids and what he was doing for the summer. And I think it was like May and, and, the, and the show had wrapped in March or something. And I said, Don, how you doing? He said, oh, I've been working really hard. I'm finally done. I said, what do you mean you're working really hard? He says, well, I just, I just finished uh, all my scripts for my wife and kids. I, I, I said, what do you mean you finished all the scripts for my wife and kids? I mean, you just finished the third or fourth year and, you know, next year you'll get together with the writers and then you'll start writing the, the scripts. He's like, uh, no, Barry, that's that's not how I work. I said, I don't, I don't, I, don't, I still don't understand that. I, Barry, I, I just wrote 25 scripts in the last two months and, and then when we get back, you know, I'll delegate them to the writing teams and then they'll punch them up and they'll work on them but i i needed to finish these 25 so i can take the summer and relax and do what i have to do i said you wrote 25 half hour scripts in two months i've never i've never heard of that before yeah barry that's 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 what i do that's how i do it so i can take blocks of time where i can really live my life again calm did all the work so cut to the story I'm about to tell. I'm on the set with Don and and Jay again. Jay Moore always had no filter and always would go toe to toe with people, even if he had never even really met them or known them or what. So I believe it was one of his first meetings with Don. He comes to the set and Don's in the director's chair and Jay sits down across from Don and in true to Joel Silver office form. And he looks at Don, and he says, Don, you know, just looking at your resume, man, you've done a lot of great things. You know, you, you work with Gleason, you know, Slappy White. You did, I mean, you created all these things. You worked on the Golden Girls. You, I mean, there, there isn't anything you haven't done. It's, a, it's amazing. And he roped Don in, but Don's a shrewd guy. And Don said, yeah, thank you. And then Jay paused and he looked at Don and he leaned over and he said, you did Blossom. I mean, you know, come on, man, you created Blossom. I mean, was, I mean, what, what are you thinking? Blossom. And <laughs> this is what I remember. Don just totally calm just leans over and it's like literally like 12 inches away from Jay's face and he says um, Jay I I have a house in Hana to drive there it probably takes seven hours but you know really you can only get there by helicopter which I do when I go there frequently throughout the year and enjoy several blocks of time in this 10,000 square foot house multi-acre area overlooking all the ocean and the beauty of Hawaii 
And then Don paused and looked at Jay and said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Got out of his director chair and walked off. <laughs> and I'll never forget that because Don had a way of calmly getting his point across and from that moment on, Jay and Don had the greatest relationship that I've ever seen two people have. And there was never a point in time where I felt that Jay missed a beat with Don and they had a great symbiotic relationship. And the message here is that, in my humble opinion, if you're going to get anywhere in this business, stay away from the people who lose their temper all the time. Stay away from the people who can't control their emotions. If you're a young person out there and you're in a affiliation of some kind of network or whatever it is, and your supervisor is somebody who is that kind of person and you truly believe in yourself, get the fuck out and go to another affiliation and align yourself with people like Don because I can guarantee you the people who started with Don, and we'll talk about this, who he hired in action, many young writers, two in particular, who stuck it out, he mentored, and they created shows on their own, and they do amazing work, and he has a lineage of people like that in his life. So stay away from the people who are negative, the people who are angry, the people who treat you like an insignificant piece of shit and stay around the people who are calm and who have a sense of mentoring. And if you have that on your side, you will take it to the highest limits. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? I'm on the air!
People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, my guest, Don Rio. I am so excited. I can't even tell you guys. This is probably going to be one of the most influential and one of the most informative podcasts you will ever see. But I don't want to put any pressure on Don because, you know, I don't want him to lose his temper. So I'm just going to introduce him. Uh, this may take longer than the cold open. Guy's got a lot of credits, but... Uh, Hopefully we'll be okay. Uh, Don Rio is an American television writer and producer. He has written, created, and produced hundreds of hours of television from the 70s to today. He began as a writer on ABC's Jimmy Durante Presents the Lennon Sisters, for which he wrote five episodes over the first season before writing for NBC's Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Can you say sock it to me? Where he wrote 50 episodes over two years. He would go on to write comedy specials, including the Jackie Gleason special and a laugh-in special. His television credits include, but are not limited to, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, All in the Family, Private Benjamin, Empty Nest, The Golden Girls, Wizards and Warriors, Double Trouble and Hard Knocks, and many, many many more which we will talk about he's worked with talented comedic actors creating vehicles for them including jay moore uh, Rhea perlman lenny clark rodney carrington uh, john larroquette and damon wayans with my wife and kids which went five years and 123 episodes in 1990 he wrote and produced the tv movie blossom which spawned the successful nbc tv show of the same name which we just talked about most recently he's produced the last two years of everybody hates chris the autobiographical tv show about a comedian chris rock's childhood and created the fox show brothers starring nfl hall of famer and charismatic man michael strahan outside of the television world in 2010 he co-wrote an unbelievable semi-fictional autobiography titled big man with and about Clarence Clemens, longtime saxophonist for Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band and one of his best friends. I should say the late Clarence Clemens. The book chronicles the life of Clemens during and beyond the E Street Band, including unbelievable, never before told adventures with Bruce and the band. Currently, Don is the executive producer on Two and a Half Men, where he's been there since 2011. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, the slightly bored, Don Rio. Well, thank you. That's uh, That sounds pretty impressive. I didn't realize I'd done all that stuff. <laughs> How old is this guy? <laughs> you don't look Jesus. at old at all. Oh, I know. Well, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, all of that is partially true. Um <laughs> You know, there are stories that go with every one of those credits, every one of the things you're, you're, you're talking about. But even before the, uh, the, the first television show I did, which was the Durante show, um, I had spent the previous two and a half years on the road playing straight for a comedian named Slappy White. Yes, and I want our audience to hear this story because the way I remember it, Don Rio, as a teenager, 
was in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. I was in North Kingstown, Rhode Island in my father's furniture store, and I heard that you could make money writing jokes. Uh, there was a column in the newspaper, uh, a guy named Earl Wilson wrote a column, and he said that there was a writer in New York named Woody Allen who was making $500 a week writing jokes, and I thought that was astounding. How is that possible? I could do that. So I started to try to sell jokes to comics who came through town. First person who bought a joke for me was a woman named Kay Ballard. Kay Ballard, yeah, of course, who's, uh, still around. And uh, do you remember the joke she bought? I don't remember the particular joke, but it was uh, it was a great relationship. You know, she uh, she encouraged me and she thought I should be an actor and I should be in a play with her. And we had uh, a few adventures. But um, when you say adventures. Well, I, I visited her in New York. She sponsored me with acting lessons with a guy named Bill Hickey. But you're a teenager. The, yeah, I was I was a teenager. So your parents just let you go to... My parents didn't have a whole lot to do with this. I didn't, I don't, I'm not sure how much I told them. You know, I lived in Rhode Island. I would drive up to New York and take a lesson with Bill Hickey and then drive back and go back to the furniture store. It was... Uh, it was it was the beginning of the of my schizophrenia, <laughs> but um, it was a, it was an interesting time. She was about to do a play called A Mother's Kisses that Bruce J. Friedman had written, and she wanted me to play her son. That was how this started, and really? then there was a strike, and it never happened. The play got canceled, and and I met Slappy, and my life changed dramatically. Now tell our audience how you met Slappy. Okay, I'm I'm in Rhode Island. I'm watching the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and Slappy White was on. He was a guest, and he was doing a routine called the First Black Vice President, <laughs> um, which was uh, he wore a derby hat and he put on sunglasses and smoked a cigar, and it was a uh, it was a question and answer thing. You know, where do you uh -huh. stand on unemployment at the head of the line? Um, uh, <laughs> I understand you were the first uh, the first black athlete at the University of Mississippi. That's right. I was a javelin catcher. <laughs> so he was very funny. And, and I thought, wow, this guy is really good. The next morning, that was a Wednesday. On Thursday morning, I pick up the newspaper and he's playing a club in Rhode Island called the New Farm Supper Club. How far was that away from you? Uh, 20, 20 minutes from my house. So I made a reservation and I started writing jokes. So I wrote jokes Thursday, Friday, and during the day on Saturday, I go to the club and he did two shows. And in the first show, he did the first black astronaut. And uh, there's a maitre d' doing this, the, the, the straight lines. So in other words, he just does... The way Slappy worked, he just did one full he did, routine. He, he did a monologue, and then he would he would uh, come back in whatever this costume was. And the astronaut, he had a jumpsuit and a helmet that he would come out in. And the and the, the second one, the black vice president, he would just put on the derby hat. And it and was a set-up punchline thing. Uh, the, the first black vice president was 25 questions and answers, 25 setups and punchlines. And the audience, the demographic of the audience was what? Well, at that point, uh, there it was white. It was all white. That was a white supper club. But as as you'll see, between uh, between the the two shows, I go to see him in the dressing room. I knock on the door. It was a dressing room. It was the manager's office. The guy who ran the the place. And Slappy was sitting behind a desk. And I came in. And I introduced myself. And I've got my jokes. And I said, I've written some jokes. And he said, I pay ten dollars a joke. So I said, Well, that's fine. You know, whatever. And he said, let me see them. So I gave him these, I think I had three sheets of paper. And he read halfway down the first page, and he had reading glasses on. He looked at me over the glasses. He said, can you read? And I thought, oh, shit. 
what have I misspelled something? What the, what's this? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I can, I can read pretty well. He said, the reason I ask, he says, I'm using uh, busboys and maitre d's to play straight. And, and when I do these two routines and they can't read, they fuck up the timing and it's a mess. I said, yeah, I can read. He said, well, would you like to go on the road with me <laughs> and play straight? And said, you can write jokes every day and, 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 uh, and play straight for me in the act. And I'll give you $150 a week. Now, $300 a week he was going to give me. $300 a week and pay my expenses. My father was giving me 150 at the time to deliver furniture. So it wasn't a difficult choice. So I said, sure. So he said, okay, we open at the Apollo Theater next Friday night <laughs> with Jackie Wilson. So I said, great. And he gave me his address in White Plains. He said, if you can come up to the house, we can work on you know some jokes. You got some good jokes here and you know we'll, uh, we'll hang out. So I said, all right. Now, did you have a car? I had a car. I was, I think I was 19. So I went home and the next morning I told my parents I was leaving town with a 52 year old black man named Slappy. <laughs> and uh, this was not well received. It was, uh, I, 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 I got a lot of cautions, but I went and, uh, and I went and uh, hung out at his house for a few days. He was married to a singer named Laverne Baker at the time. Had big hit records, Tweedly D and uh, mm-hmm. a couple of others. Previously, he had been married to uh, Pearl Bailey and uh, really? Dinah Washington. He was attracted to singers. I had Dinah Washington's album when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I met, I met uh, uh, her, uh, not Dinah, I, m- I met uh, Laverne the first night I arrived there. She was leaving the next day to go on a tour of the Far East, and Slappy never saw her again. Uh, she went off and never came back. That was the end of that marriage. It dissolved somewhere. Normally, it's the men who go to the Far East who yeah. you never see them yes, again. Yes, right. And he lived next door to a woman named Jackie Mabley, Mom's Mabley, and her, her daughter, Bonnie. And they lived in the house uh, immediately next to his house, which was a split-level house in White Plains. And there was a sign on the roof of Mom's house that said, no squares allowed. Big sign. You wouldn't recognize Mom's Mabley Now, stage. for those of you who don't know, Mom's Mabley, one of the greatest uh, female comedians or any comedians of all time. And I used to love her as a... You know, ten-year-old white kid. Yeah, she was. She was great. She was. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg recently did a, a, a biopic about her, and uh, it's it's really worth tracking down. She was very very funny. She worked the Chitlin Circuit, and she had this character that that she did. Anyway, she did, a, she did a character of an old woman, very old woman. Yes, the oldest woman in the world. So we worked. Uh, Slappy and I worked on the act, and then Friday we went to the Apollo Theater, um, and I walked out on stage for the first time in my life anywhere and i introduced him as the first black vice president that was the bill that that it was big maybell uh slappy and i and uh jackie wilson and uh that was the first time i was ever on any stage anywhere were you nervous yeah i was nervous were you the only white person on stage i was the only white person in 10 blocks (laughs) there were no white people around there now i didn't didn't see many white people for the next two and a half years (laughs) now Explain how you felt so comfortable, because from what I'm getting from your family, I'm not saying your family might have been racist, but they certainly weren't like a hundred percent the other way. Uh, no, they 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 were in between. I mean, it was it, it was a totally different time. You know, the world was in a state of of, of upheaval, and uh, you know, this is the mid '60s. It was pretty crazy. Um, 
and attitudes were changing. They, they weren't racist, but they were worried for me. You know, uh, we worked the Apollo Theater when there was a riot in Harlem. And uh, it was a little, you know, it's a funny story. Years later, I was working with George Slaughter and Cher. We were doing a, the Cher special. And we went to New York together and Cher was going to do a show uh, uh, um, at the Apollo with uh, Diana Ross. So we went up to the Apollo Theater and sat with uh, Bobby Schiffman, who ran the, the theater at that time. He had inherited it from his father. And he kept a, a record of every act that played there. So I said, well, look up uh, the, the first time we played there, which was October of 67 or 68, I forget. And... Uh, and see what you wrote down for Slappy White. And he wrote, Slappy White has white boy with him, could be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but there was no trouble. It was great. I mean, we were... So the first we were, show you killed. We did very well there. Uh, we did very well there. We kind of tailored the the act for that audience, for, for a black audience. And, um, and it worked. I had an orange tuxedo. And uh, I walked out and he was wearing a black tuxedo. He said, that's a nice tuxedo, Mr. Rio. I said, thank you. He said, we used to dress like that. <laughs> so that was kind of an icebreaker. And uh, and after that, we uh, we just uh, hit the road. So there was never any time in a stand-up where he would, you know how like on Def Jam when it started, one of the most favorite things that the African-American comics would do would imitate the white man. Hey, yeah, yeah, brother. Yeah. No, hey, no, it? we never did that. We did a routine. So he, so he never, he never no, shit on the white no. person. We did a routine where I was reading Life magazine and he was reading Ebony, which at the time were the same size. And I would read the white <laughs> version of a story and he'd do the black version <laughs> of the story. You know, it was, uh, it, it was fun stuff. No, I never experienced, oddly enough, any kind of racism in either direction. Now, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> You're in that world yes obviously the women in your life are now all <laughs> black women that are around you are you are you like going out with like uh, are, at that time which was a very tough time were you were you experiencing a lot of interracial relationships that were sort of taboo everybody that I, everybody that i met and spent time with in that two and a half years was uh, was non-white uh, except when I would come home, when I would come home to Rhode Island, I had I had friends in Rhode Island. It was it was really an odd existence. I'd, I'd you know we'd he would book two weeks at the Flamingo in in Vegas, and we'd play the two weeks, and then have two weeks down, and I'd go back to the furniture store. It was it was insane. It was crazy. You know, we'd be up all night in in Vegas for two weeks, and then I'd go to the store at ten o'clock in the morning. It was a it was a bizarre time, um, which ended basically when he and Steve Rossi. Steve Rossi had come to see us. He had split up with Marty Allen, and he had a an offer from Caesar's Palace for he and Slappy to do pretty much the same act, except with Steve singing. Um, and Slappy offered to keep me on as a writer for the same amount of money, and I said, "No, I want to. I want to try to crack Hollywood." So I came out here and moved into the Players Motel on Vine Street and decided to get a job. All right. So you took the risk and came out here. I did. Yes. I and had, how, so how did you get the first job? Oh, this is a good story, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting in the Players Motel on Vine Street. I gave myself six days to get a job. I figured if it takes longer than that, you know, it's probably not going to happen. So wait, you came here with enough money to last you six days. Yes, that's right. And and a, a, and a, a collection of jokes about the size of a phone book, because I had written jokes every day for and two and a half years. these were typed or written by hand? They were typed. They were typed on, on, a, on, a, on an old typewriter, an old blue uh, 
Um, I, gee, I can't remember what kind it was. So I, had, I later got an IBM Selectric that was stolen by this guy in uh, Harlem named Sylvester the Pants Man. <laughs> he was called Sylvester the Pants Man because he would steal uh, to measure. In other words, he would take your measurements and then he would go out and steal and have pants tailored that would fit you perfectly. You could also buy cars from Sylvester. He worked out of a club called the Blue Book in Harlem. Fascinating, fascinating guy. Anyway, uh, he stole me an IBM Selectric typewriter, which I used in later so years. So you knew that he stole a typewriter, but you still bought it. Yes, me. yes. I wrote all my material on a stolen, stolen typewriter. I just don't picture you. I, I look at you in the highest esteem. And yeah, yeah. Well, you weren't around then. I also, I also didn't look like everybody else at that time. You know, I... I I I was influenced by black entertainers, so I wore a lot of satin. Uh, I had sunglasses that matched the color of my shirt. My hair was long at the time. You know, was, this is what, in the late sixties. I was I had hair like the Beatles. You know, and it was a that was an unusual thing at that time. Now, don't be mad at me for asking this. I'm go gonna go back to the well here. Yeah. So you're dating a lot of black women. That's yes. And did you tell your family? No, I don't remember telling them anything about my adventures on the road. There were there were more things than than women. You know, it was it was a whole new world. Like Slappy was became a surrogate father to me. And he told me things that a real father would never tell me. For instance, he said, it's OK to smoke dope, but stay away from cocaine. Now, this is very good <laughs> advice, but your dad is probably not going to give you this advice, right? Your real dad isn't. But Slappy did, and, uh, and I took his advice, <laughs> and at least for take, 20 years. And you're still taking his advice? I take time. it now, yes. There was, there was a brief period there where I ignored it. So I stopped you here. So go for the next story of how you... So you're coming here. We have a dollar and a dream, six days. Yeah, and I and, had a bunch... And I had a phone number because Slappy had done a special called Soul, which was a black version of Laughing that George Slaughter produced. Mm -hmm. So I had, he gave me George Slaughter's phone number. He said, call him when you get to L.A. And, uh, and, and George uh, Slaughter is one of the most iconic comedy producers of all time. And You've got to have him in here. He's the best guy ever. He's I know. got the greatest stories. And I haven't had him in here yet. And he's produced every kind of comedy special. And to this day... I don't know how he does it. He still produces great things. I, I love George Slaughter. He's the last of the real cougars. He's the last of the real honest-to-God producers. Anyway, I had George Slaughter's phone number. I'm making air quotes here. Um, <laughs> so we worked our last date in uh, in Dallas, and then he was going off to Vegas to, to be with Steve, La uh, Steve uh, uh, Rossi. And I came out here and... Booked into the Players Motel on Vine Street, which is now called something else. It's a travel lodge or something. It's near uh, it's near Santa Monica, behind the pavilions. How much money did you have on you? Oh, I don't. I I, I don't remember. I had less than five hundred dollars for sure. You know. So I got there on a Sunday. I got there on Sunday night. I was watching some hockey playoffs. I remember. And uh, and uh, the next day, I got up and I and I called George Slaughter. And it was the NBC switchboard. That was what the number was for. So I asked for George Slaughter, and I waited. And uh, his secretary, Donna, answered. Said George Slaughter's office. I said hi. Uh, introduced myself. I said I've got this material. I'd like to talk to George. She said he's in a meeting. He'll call you back. So I said okay. This is the first time I had ever heard the phrase. He's in a meeting. 
And I believed her. I thought he was in a meeting and he would call me back. He didn't. So I sat there all day on on Monday, <laughs> and uh, because back then you didn't have a cell phone, you had the hotel phone. You had, had to sit by phone. the phone. Yeah, you were tethered to the phone. I had to stay by the phone. He never called back. So I thought, huh, that's weird, you know. So so Tuesday morning, I, I call him again, you know, and got Donna again, and she said, uh, yeah, yeah, he got the message, but uh, you know, he'll call you back. He's in a meeting. So I said, okay, all right. So. I hung up and now I'm thinking, this guy's not going to call me back. So we had done the Steve Allen show, Slappy and I, and two guys who ran it were uh, Jeff Harris and Bernie Kukoff. And Jeff had said to me when we did the show, uh, did you write these jokes? And I said, yeah. He said, well, if you're ever looking for a job, give, give me a call. So I called the Steve Allen show. And Switchboard answered. I said, Jeff Harris and Bernie Kukoff. They said, they're not here anymore. They've been fired. So I said, oh, I said, well, who's running the show now? And they said, Elias Davis and David Pollack. So I said, well, can I talk to them? And they said, let me put you through their office. They were in a meeting. They'd call me back. They never did. Um, But they gave me a number for Jeff Harris and Bernie Kukoff. So I called the number and Bernie Kukoff answers the phone because his secretary, Tina, was in the bathroom. This is a pivotal point in my life. Fate if, is such a strange Tina thing. doesn't go to the bathroom at that exact moment, I'm working in a furniture store today. Maybe. Fate is a very strange thing. So whenever so, you're in a relationship and your girlfriend has to pee, think of it as a good moment. <laughs> so Bernie answers the phone and he says, yeah, what do you want? I said, well, uh, I went through the whole spiel again. He said, uh, he said how old are you? I said, I'm, uh, what was I, 23 at the time? And he said, uh, he said, oh, he said, you know, we're, 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 we're prepping a show for Jimmy Durante and we're looking for a, for a new writer. So I said, well, I'm about as new as they come. <laughs> so he said, uh, he said, you have any material? So I said, yeah. He said, bring it over. And they were on Sunset Boulevard. There, there were two buildings over by Tower Records that had elevators that were outside the building. I don't know if they're still there. Anyway, that's where they were. So I went out on the street. I got my material and waited for a taxi. And uh, that's how I, th- I figured you flagged down a taxi, right? I was I was New York based, so I stood there quite a while. And the the manager of the hotel is watching me, and he came out and he said, "Do you want a taxi?" So I said, "Yeah." He said, "All right, I'll call one for you." So anyway, they called a taxi. I went up there and I walked in, and Tina was there, and, and they brought me into the office. Jeff and Bernie had partners' desks, and and I had this pile of material like this, but I, I was odd looking. As I said, I was wearing a purple satin shirt and uh, purple sunglasses and big boots. And I was very strange. So, uh, so they said, oh, drop off your material. Uh, you know, we'll read it. We're going to London tomorrow. This is also a lie. We're going to London tomorrow. So we'll get back to you after a while. See, if you said they're going to London, there was no real pressure to call you back and they could, you know, push you aside. <laughs> So I go back to the hotel and I walk in and the phone rings and it's Kukoff. He's looked at the material and he saw that I could write jokes. So he said, how long did it take you to write these? I said, well, it's a product of two and a half years. So he said, can you write something for me? So I said, yeah, what do you want? He said, a, a monologue for Bob Hope, two pages. Crosstalk between Jimmy Durante and Bob Hope, two pages. And crosstalk between Jimmy Durante and the Lennon sisters, two pages. So I said, sure. Yeah, I can do that. So he said, uh, you know, when can you have it? I said, I'll have it tomorrow morning. So he said, okay, you sure? I said, well, yeah, you know, this is kind of what I do. Yeah, I can do that. 
So I went out and bought a bunch of newspapers and wrote topical jokes. I wish I still had these. And uh, and I, I stayed up all night. And I, I wrote the jokes. This is now Tuesday night. The Wednesday morning I get up, I'm looking at the material. I'm, I'm thinking, this. I don't know if it's good enough. It seems funny to me. I don't know. And I'm walking out the door and the phone rings and it's George Slaughter. George Slaughter called me back <laughs> on Wednesday. So I made an appointment to go see him later on that afternoon. And I go and drop off the material to Jeff and Bernie. Then I go to Burbank and I meet with George. He, he was in a, an office building that was directly across from the smokehouse. It doesn't exist anymore. They knocked the building down. And uh, I met with George. I dropped the material off. And uh, that was a great meeting. I mean, he was just so full of energy, just an amazing guy. And uh, But I never heard from him. Uh, I heard from him a year later. When Durante's show got canceled, he hired me to work on Laugh-In. But... I go back to the to the hotel and, and Bernie Kukoff is called and he said, we want to hire you. We want you, we want to put you on staff. So we said, we'll have our, our agent call you. Uh, William Morris was packaging the thing. It was a guy named Fred Apollo called me and uh, they offered me, uh, they said, they can't pay you. I can't pay you scale, which was $600 a show. Uh, we can't afford that, but we'll give you $400 a show, but you, we can't give you credit. Because if you're going to get credit, you have to get scale. So I thought, the only reason I'm doing this is to get credit. You know, I mean, this is, a, this is a chance. So I called Slappy and I said, what should I do? So he said, tell him you want $600 and you want credit. So I did. And I, they kept me hanging till Friday. And they called back and said, okay, you have a deal. Now, what I'm surprised you didn't do, I'm surprised you didn't say, listen, I just got it. Back from meeting with George Slaughter. And, oh, I wish and, I had been smart enough. See, I needed a manager. That's what I needed. <laughs> I'm always there for you, Doug. I didn't have one. So they called back on Friday and said, okay, we start in uh, on the first week of June, and uh, we'll see you there. So I went back to Rhode Island, packed up everything, rented a house in Northridge, I think, and came out here and went to work on this series. There were two other writers. There was a guy named Bill Box who had invented the box cards, the first greeting cards that had jokes, and a guy named Hugh Wedlock Jr., who was 72 years old and had added the junior to his name so people would think he was his own son. Because <laughs> ageism did exist even then. And Hughie, he was a great guy. He had worked for Jack Benny for years and years and years. And uh, he had all these great stories. And he was kind of a cynical guy. You know, he said, well, let me tell you what show business is, kid. They, they get you used to living on $1,000 a week and then they take it away. <laughs> right. And he was right about that. He was right about a lot of things. He said, you know, if Milton Berle likes you, he'll show you his cock, which was an also, uh, also a, a, a thing that turned out to be true. Because Milton was, Jimmy that year had, had called in all his favors. So we had all the biggest stars in the world, no pun intended. Uh, you know, Sinatra was on that show and uh, Danny Thomas and Bob Hope and uh, and uh, Burl and all kinds of people were, were on that series. That series had its own problems because in the middle of production, in the middle of the season, some lunatic shot and killed the father of the Lennon sisters. Some guy who thought he was married to one of the Lennon sisters. It was a bumpy ride. Well, what's interesting is even back then, in the very beginning, television would take musical artists who had no comedy training and try to make them funny. 
And throughout time, you were involved with a bunch of those things, uh, yes. like the Cher of special yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. Now, thankfully, she was funny. Cher was funny, yeah. Cher, but, Cher was great. So you do that. You do that show. What's the next step in your career? What happens next? Uh, George called, and I did three years on uh, on uh, Laugh-In, where I met Alan Katz, who became my partner. We wanted to break into half hours, which was a much higher art form. You know, if you're a joke writer, you couldn't write half hours. Uh, can we just was... can we just talk about laughing for a second? Sure. So again, probably one of the most groundbreaking shows at the time. Indeed. Yeah. Dan Rowan and Dick Martin. Okay, so they were a comedy team that worked the circuit, and they were given their own show. But when they got the show, were they known as? You know how certain comedians get shows who shall remain nameless, some of which you've worked with, who they get shows and the other comics are looking around, you know, saying, dirty, rotten world. That guy hasn't even, that guy couldn't hold my jockstrap. Was that comedy team, were they respected or were they just given a show ahead of a lot of other guys that were much more respected at the time? I have no idea. I had never heard of them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know them. If I ran into them on the street, all I knew was I had a job and there were two guys named Dan and Dick who were, you know, who were the stars of this thing. I didn't know what their history was. I didn't know where they stood in relationship to other teams. I was just happy to have someplace to go. So you go, you have your cast there of all these unique individuals, uh, Joanne Worley, Ruth Buzzy, Henry Gibson, Gibson. Henry Gibson. Yeah. Um, uh, Goldie Hawn. Yeah. Um, and then later, Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin. Now, when you were there and you step on the set and you just meet these people the first time, or maybe you see the first show before it airs, who was it of all those people that in your mind you thought was going to be the biggest star? Oh, it was definitely Lily. You know, I thought Lily was, and I still think, uh, a genius. Um um, she joined the show. The show was the number one show in the country when I joined it. It was already a hit. It was in its, I think it was the third year, and I stayed another three years. George, in fact, left, and the show was taken over by a guy named Paul Keyes. Um, but Lily was, you know, I thought Lily was the best thing to ever come down the road. And, uh, and I think I was right. You know, and, Gold, and Goldie was one of those people who was lit up from inside. You know, she just had that that light around her. She was she was clearly special. Got it. Interesting. And uh, so keep going. So now you're you're telling me how that. Yeah, well, we got to, you know, I got to with all the writers. The writers were housed in a motel. Very few people know this. It was called the Toluca Capri. It's still there. It's across diagonally across the street from Warner Brothers. And uh, we had all the apartments in that uh, in that motel, a hotel, I guess it's so a motel. So it was a working and <laughs> living house. situation. Well, we didn't live there. There was a woman who did live there. We're never really sure what she did, but uh, who wasn't part of our group. But the rest of the Laugh-In writers were housed in the Toluca Capri. And do you know, as you're going into the next gig, do you know that I'm never going to do another job at the furniture store again it's like what was the moment that happened where you said i'm confident that i'm never going to have to go back well when i when i got on uh the durani show i then got an agent you know so I, I like to say my agent believed in me when everybody else did but i 
I got a, I got a, I got an agent, a great agent actually, a guy named Bernie Weintraub, and uh, he was partnered with a guy named Stu Robinson, and they had their own agency. They had both been in the in the big agencies, and they started this little boutique agency. And I knew once I signed with them that that I was gonna, I was never going back to the furniture <laughs> store. There's no way I'm I'm staying here. No matter what happens. But, you know, this business, this life of ours is like living on the side of a volcano constantly. You never know when it's going to blow up. You never know. uh, And I mean that in both ways. You blow up and become very successful or you blow up and you're you're lying on the side of the road in pieces. You know, if you're looking for security, this is the wrong place to be. Well, you know, I I I say something and maybe I say this too much, but. There's many other professions that are much more difficult than this. Obviously, if you're going to become any kind of doctor that's doing surgery, as I like to say, you fuck up one time and you can't work anywhere in the country. If you're a writer and you fuck up one time, that's called uh, a day. (laughs) And then it's rewritten and you make work. So it... I think that writers and people in this business, I think it's a much better situation than people give it credit for because as a writer, yes, it is tough because, you know, you write something and then maybe somebody says, we don't like that, but then you just rewrite it and you have a chance to do again. No, Very rarely do you hand something in and somebody says, you're fired. They give you a chance to correct your work, but I want to keep going here. So you go from the Laugh-In, what's the next show? Well, during Laugh-In, I started writing half hours with uh, Alan Katz. I met this guy, Alan Katz, from Chicago, uh, who George had hired because Alan had written a funny box. There was a... a product called Screaming Yellow Zonkers. And Alan worked for an advertising agency in Chicago and had written the box. And George picked up a box in Marina Del Rey in the supermarket and tracked him down and hired him. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met to this day. Alan is great. And we became partners and we wanted to break into half hours. And Bernie said, "There's no way you're a joke writer. You can't. You can't do half hours. You know that's that's. You have to be more sophisticated." So your, so your great agent said, "Don, you can't. You can't do that. You're going to be a variety show writer. Variety shows are never going to die. You're going to keep doing this forever." What do you do when your agent says, "Don, you can't do that"? I called Red Fox because Red Fox was a friend of mine from the road. We had gotten high together. You know, he was he and Slappy started out as a team. They were called Lewis and White in St. Louis when when they were both young. And uh and and I had hung out with Red a lot of times when we were on the road and I knew him real well. He was the funniest person in the world to me. And his comedy I mean, was very, very blue but he, not before Def Jam. It, it was also conceptual. You know, my wife weighs 350 pounds. She thinks I love her because when I get in bed, I roll toward her. <laughs> that's a great joke. You know, that's a great joke as well as the dirty ones. She said, kiss me where it smells. So I drove her to El Segundo. <laughs> but seriously. So Red had just gotten this show called Sanford and Son, which was a gigantic hit based on a an English show called Steptoe and Son. And the English show had twelve scripts that they they that a guy named Aaron Rubin, who produced that show, he uh, he 
reworked those 12. And now they got the back nine and they don't have any scripts. So I called Red and I said, you know, can you get us in there? And he said, sure, absolutely. Because Red wasn't fond of white people except for me and a couple of other uh, folks over the years. So he liked the idea that I was going to, you know, come in there and help. And Alan and I wrote, I think we wrote seven Sanford and Sons that year while we were working on Laugh-In. We also wrote a pilot, our first pilot for Aaron Spelling. Um, it's called Mrs. Thursday. It was We wrote it for Pearl Bailey. Uh, it was about a cleaning woman who, uh, who talks to the guy who runs the conglomerate, and he dies and leaves her the conglomerate. We never, uh, we never actually, never became a series, but that was our first time writing a pilot. And, uh, and during that time, we wrote episodes. In those days, you freelanced. We wrote uh, an episode of All in the Family, and uh, I forget what else, a bunch of other stuff. So Alan and I started a, a career that lasted, we were together for three years, I think, and we did all kinds of things. We did the Gleason Show uh, together. You know, I could talk about the Gleason Show for three hours, which was a one-hour special. Um, well, I think one of the things I want you to talk about with Gleason is that, first of all, for those in the audience, you're listening, you got a guy like Don, and he's telling you about all these pilots he wrote that didn't go anywhere. That's right. And that's what writing is. You know, you just keep going, you just keep putting it out there, and the timing is right, and and you never know that day when the person goes to the bathroom. But anyway, but going for this, because this story, uh, I want to talk about working with talent because you work with all kinds of talent. I have. And a lot of times what you don't know in the audience when you're watching a show, you don't know what they're like behind the scenes. Nobody knows. So if I were to mention anybody right now, I were to mention Ray Romano, Ellen, Jackie Gleason. I bet most of you in the audience would think, God, they seem like nice people. Uh -huh. All of them are great to work with. I'm not going to comment on uh, any of them and how great they are to work with because they've always been uh, great to me, although I never knew Gleason. But you'll find different uh, conversations around what it was like working with certain people, what it was like working for Jay Leno Dennis Miller, David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel, Johnny Carson. Everybody has different stories, but when you see them on television, huggable and lovable, and you don't know. Now, with Gleason, when I watched, all I saw was a guy who I thought was huggable, lovable, and a genius. But you and the writers saw a different side of him. Could you talk about that? Well, yeah. First of all, I agree with you. I watched him under very unique circumstances, which I'll, I'll get to at, at the end of this story. Uh, Alan and I were a really hot team at this time. This is around 1972, 73. And two guys named uh, Frank Pepiot and John Aylesworth had been hired to go down and do the Gleason show. They'd been hired by a producer named Bob Finkel. Frank and John had created uh, Hee Haw, which was a country version of Laugh-In. It had been canceled by CBS while it was in the top 10 because they wanted to change their viewer profile. And Frank and John mortgaged their houses, risked everything, and went station to station and syndicated that show by themselves 
ended up with more stations than CBS had and became really, really rich. So that's where our starting point is. They were also, Frank Pepiot was one of the most elegant drunks I've ever met in my life. He was just the classiest guy, but he always had a martini in his hand. He was always kind of very much like like Peter Lawford. He was like an English <laughs> lord. I loved Frank Pepiot and, uh, and also John. So anyway, they call us and said, you know, would you come and talk to us about working for Gleason? So we go out to Malibu. Frank was renting a house in the colony. And uh, we knock on the door, and, and Frank opens the door. He's got a martini. He says, ah, Katz and Rio, yes. Do you drink? <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah, occasionally. He said, good, good, come in. Come in, let's drink and talk. And his thing was, you know, we get to wear this T-shirt. We worked with Jackie Gleason. You know, we're going to write an episode of The Honeymooners. This is a, it's an opportunity you can't pass up. So uh, we made a deal. We go to Florida, and Gleason at the time was in a place called Inverary, which is it's slightly past hell, about two off ramps past hell. Now you know you, when you're working with a big star, when a show has to come to him. Yes. Oh yeah. The show took place in this development that he was part of um, called Inverary. And at the time it might be very nice now, but at the time it was brand new and it was way away from the ocean and it was August in Miami. So it's not good. So we get there the first day we're meeting at the tennis club and Gleason is sitting. There was a lake there and a man-made lake and Gleason is sitting with his back to the lake in the shade and he has chairs all set up in the sun for all of us to sit. And he sits down and says, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. And he runs through the whole show. And then he comes over and shakes hands, introduces himself to me and to Alan. And I thought, this is nice. Okay, we had to sit in the sun, but it's all right. So we go back to the condo. We were the only people in this entire development because it, you know, it was not livable. It was not fit for human beings in August. So we go back there and, and his producer was a guy named Jack Philbin. And Jack Philbin comes in, he's laughing. He said, you know, Jackie thought that you guys, Alan and I, were Peppy at Nailsworth's agents. Otherwise, he would have never talked to you. <laughs> and in fact, Jackie didn't talk to anyone except a writer named Walter Stone, who worked for him for years. Walter was also a great guy. But Jackie, if I asked you a question, you're Jackie Gleason, you would answer Walter. You wouldn't talk to me directly. Um, he was uh, he was difficult. He would sneak around in the afternoons and peek in the window. This is one of the biggest stars in the world. And he would he would peek in the windows to see if we were working at three in the afternoon. Frank and John were rich and they'd fly to L.A. every weekend. Right? They'd come back. But, but Al and I were stuck in the, in the Everglades for <laughs> for six weeks. Anyway, cut to the night of the show. We write the show, the whole show, the honeymooners and the and the Reggie Van Gleese in, in in a week because he had the story all laid out what he wanted. It was not difficult. So he said, work on the monologue. So we worked on the monologue for five weeks. We wrote jokes every single day. They were never good enough. Never, you know, never, never, never enough to say, uh, okay, take some time off. So five weeks of writing jokes. And uh, we go down, there's a big production meeting, all the stars are there, and um, we move to Miami. Frank and John moved us to Miami, not the show. Frank and John got us hotel rooms at the, at the uh, Doral Hotel. And it's the night of the show. And it's raining 
hammers and nails. It's raining the way it can only rain in the tropics. It is unbelievably pouring down rain. We have one car, Frank's driving. Frank's a little tipsy. It's early, though. John is sitting in the passenger seat, and Alan and I are in the back seat. It was some kind of Ford or something. Anyway, we pull up to the Miami Beach Auditorium, and we go around the side, and there's a there's a guy standing there. I remember he's wearing a yellow slicker with a you know, kind of a policeman's hat and a long yellow slicker, and he's got a he's got a uh, a list. So we pull up, and Frank rolls down the window, and he says, "Hi, uh, we're the writers." And the guy said, "What are your names?" And Frank gives him our name, and the guy says, uh, uh, "You're not on the list." And Frank turned around, he looked at me, he said, "We're not on the list." <laughs> So he said, what do you suggest we do? The guy said, well, there's a parking lot two blocks down. There's some spaces on the third floor. You park there, and then you, you, you walk back. Frank says, oh, oh, great. Thank you very much. And he rolls up the window, and he turns around. Now, in front of the Miami Beach Auditorium, there was a, a circle then with grass and a flagpole in the middle of the circle. And Frank turns around, and he decks it. And we back up, bounce over the, the sidewalk, and slam into the flagpole. <laughs> Frank opens the door and he gets out and he's standing here. He's backlit now because there's lights coming from the Miami, from the marquee. He's backlit. He stands here. He's instantly soaking wet. And he says, see ya. And he walked off into the night and I never saw him again. It was the greatest exit in the history of time. He just went away. So at some point, John gets out and follows him. That's two people in yeah. your life that you never, one, saw, never again. saw again. John follows him. Alan and I finally make our way into the Miami Beach Auditorium where Jackie Gleason has set up a monitor and a, and a couch for us and his agent, a guy named uh, Sam Cohen, to watch the show in the men's room of the Miami Beach Auditorium. There's, a, there's an ante room kind of, they used to call it a smoking area, a step up here, and then a row of urinals that went, I don't know, three city blocks. And we're sitting there on this couch. People are coming in to, to you know, go to the bathroom. It's all about urine. Yeah, yeah, well, and and the, sh and the, and the, the monitor comes on. The show starts, right? It's freezing in there. It's 55 degrees. He always had it cold in there. And uh, Gleason comes out, and he says, uh, now, don't forget, we've been writing monologue jokes for five weeks. Gleason comes out, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the greatest audience in the world of Miami Beach Auditorium, we've got so much show tonight, we're not going to do a monologue. Here's the June Taylor dancers. <laughs> Right. So oh after all this time, he God. skips the monologue and, and then does the rest of the show. And I sat there in the men's room after five weeks of dealing with this guy, and he made me laugh. He was brilliant. And that's my Gleason story. So in your mind, I've heard this a few times by a few great writers like yourself that... I'll tell you where I heard it. And if I heard it the last time I remember from an executive producer, Robert Morton, uh -huh. yeah. variety Morty. producer, yeah. Morty. And he said, told me about the day after 15 years of working on the number one show on television and late night, Letterman calls him in his office and says, we're going to make a change. Uh -huh. And he says he never saw Letterman again. Never talked to him again. And I asked him, um, do you watch the show? And he says, every night. 
every night he makes me laugh. So what that tells me is the great, great artists who are the geniuses, they transcend bad things that happen to you with them and you still have to watch them. Yeah, well, you know, there's a separation. You have to make a separation between the, the art and the artist. You know, it's, there's an old saying that never sit too close at the ballet because if you're up front, you can hear them grunting and farting and stuff and it ruins the illusion, <laughs> you know? So you don't want to get too close to your heroes. It's, uh, it's often uh, depressing. What comes next after Gleason? Oh, Gleason, there was a string of variety shows, and then we got hired to uh, to work on MASH. Larry Gelbart had left, uh, and uh, Al and I were hired by Gene Reynolds to to do MASH. So uh, here we are. Uh, so now you're doing single-camera dramedy. It was probably yes. the first dramedy that I ever remember on television. Very unique concept. Yeah, I think it was. Well, you know, it was a hit movie. We had met Alan Alda. Alan had done a limited series called We'll Get By, which was Paul Sorvino and Mitzi Hogue. And, and Alan and I were writers on that show. Alan had based the, the show really on his life. And, uh, and we knew Alan a little bit. So when this opportunity came up, when Larry Gelbart, you know, who's not replaceable, he's a gigantic genius. Uh, when he left, there was an opening there, and we, we got the opportunity to work on that show. And I believe the only cast member that was on the show from the movie was uh, Radar O'Reilly, right? Gary Burgoff. I think Burgoff, that's right. Yeah, Gary Burgoff. Yeah. Which is another guy who was fascinating, who was huggable and lovable yeah. on television and behind the scenes, was probably the most difficult person on the set. I, I, I wasn't in, in directly involved with Gary, but but I remember people talking about him being you know, the, the one guy who wasn't as easy to get along with as everybody else in that, in that group. I never experienced it, but... And I wasn't there when McLean Stevenson was there, who apparently was also somewhat difficult for, who left for Larry. When, who left when it was a hit show. And, uh, you know, people always talk about stars that leave shows like McLean Stevenson and uh, Shelley Long, I believe, on Cheers. And if they make the right decisions. And what's odd is when you look at certain situations like that, I don't know of one example where somebody left a hit show early on where... It suited them and things went well. I can't think of one off the top of my head either. But that, you know, when, when McLean left, there was a full episode that was written about him leaving. And then Larry wrote another scene. And the scene where Radar comes out and says, he's dead. His plane went down. I remember but that. Nobody on the stage knew about that. You know, and Larry did it at the last minute to, to really cut off any possibility of McLean coming back. That was a moment I'll never forget on television. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so you did a, bu a bunch of variety shows, and, and we don't have to get into every one of those. Because we don't have time. We don't have time. So tell me when the first scripted show you worked on where you really were like, wow. Obviously, you worked on the Mary Tyler Moore show a little yeah. bit. You wrote on All in the Family. Yeah, wrote episodes, um, yeah. These are amazing shows, the Golden Girls. Yeah. I mean, you work with some of the most amazing talent. In the world. Absolutely, yes. So when was the first moment where you got a chance to create your own show and get something on television? Do you know... As opposed to working for the man. Yeah. 
I think the first one was uh, Wizards and Warriors. Um, I think that was the first one I created that went to series. It was uh, it was kind of like I had read The Princess Bride and I wanted to do something like that. And uh, and Wizards and Warriors was that. It was you know it was a it was a, a medieval action adventure piece set in my mind in the distant future when wizardry was uh, had come back into vogue and so on and so forth. Anyway, I think that was the first one. But I remember the, the, a startling moment for me was I had written Fade In Interior Castle. And then one day I walked onto stage, uh, I think it's stage 23, the friend stage on uh, at Warner Brothers, and there was a castle on the stage. And I thought, God damn, this is good. <laughs> this is a good job. I write it and there it is. You know, it was, uh, that was kind of fun. Bill Bixby directed a lot of those episodes. Bill Bixby. Wow. Yeah, he was a good friend of mine. The first show he did was Father. Courtship of Eddie's Father. Yeah. And then of course the Incredible. Incredible Hulk. Hulk. He did a bunch of sh series. He did The Magician. A lot of stuff. He was a great, great guy, Bill. I loved Bill. And he was working for me when he passed away. He was directing Blossom. Um, and did, Now, uh, I, I don't know. Was he sick? or did He was, was very, very sick. Yeah. He he worked up until two days before he died. I, the last thing he said to me, he was driving off the lot. He was being driven. He couldn't drive anymore. And I was I walked out of the stage, and his car was pulling by, and the car stopped, and he rolled down the window, and he gestured to me. He was very, very weak at that time. And I came over and he patted my hand and he said, order the good wine. And that's the last thing he said to me. And he died uh, 48 hours later. But why was he telling you that then? Because he knew he was dying. He knew he was dying and that was his advice. Don't waste your time. Enjoy every sandwich, as Warren Zevon said. Order the good wine. Don't order the cheap stuff. Because you never know. God, that's tough advice, telling a Jew. <laughs> I'm going to have to reevaluate. See, my I life don't, I don't have that part, that problem. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, so, so keep going. What's what's next for you after that? What's the what's? Boy, the... you know, there was there was a whole series of shows that I did. The ones that stand out in my mind, the John Larroquette show was as good as this business gets. That for was me. the one in the bus station. Yes, and yes. relationships because Lenny Clark was in that show, and you you eventually did a show with Lenny I did as a well. Show with Lenny, yeah. Um, so Larroquette. Uh, that was an amazing show, Larroquette, and I, I want to just talk about this for a second. Because John Larroquette, certain guys who are just like, they seem like they're built for television at the time. And he was like a, a Ferrari for television. But what was interesting about him, and you tell me if I'm wrong, which was very rare, I always say normally huggable and lovable win the race. But during that time, there were a series of shows that you had a main character that was dark and that was not really somebody you'd want to walk up to and hug was somebody who rarely smiled and same with carol o'connor and all in the family and you could point to a bunch of different shows that you probably worked on um, jackie gleason was very edgy and dark um, and always troubled but it didn't matter on the Larroquette show. And I found that most all of the characters on that show, and you probably think I'm crazy here. It was almost like, to me, a multi-camera arrested development because it was like you had a lot of characters that were not really that huggable and lovable, 
yet people love the show. Yeah. Yeah, that that's right. That show was written not for John Larroquette. It was written two years before John Larroquette read it. It was called Crossroads, and I just wrote it as a as as a as spec pilot. It, I was listening to all all almost everything that I've done is influenced by music, and at the time I was listening to a lot of Tom Waits. I was listening to 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 music about you know train stations at three o'clock in the morning, and you know I'll meet you at the bottom of a bottle of bargain scotch, and you know that kind of stuff spoke to me. You know, rain dogs, and uh, and I and I've used a lot of a lot of Tom Waits metaphors in, in, in a lot of things that I wrote because I, I think he's brilliant, and I, I wanted to write about somebody starting the first moment of their life again. So so I came up with this concept of a guy who was sober for a day. Basically, he's white knuckling it. He goes to it opens in a meeting. And my name is John Hemingway and I'm an alcoholic. Um, and he gets this job in this bus station over the black kid, Chill Mitchell, who worked at the lunch counter because the black kid is black. That's the only reason uh, Hemingway got the job. And I named him Hemingway because I wanted it to be all about America, set it in in East St. Louis in a bus station, the Crossroads bus station. East St. Louis today is probably the worst, uh, Yeah, one of the worst areas in the country. When you're east of East St. Louis and the wind is making speeches. Where Reggie Hudlin is from. And the rain sounds like a round of applause. There you go. That's Tom Waits. Anyway, that's what inspired this thing. So I wrote, uh, I wrote this on spec, and it sat around, and we couldn't get any traction with it at all. And for those of you who don't uh, know the lingo, and most of you do, but some of you don't, and when you write something on spec, you're writing something essentially where you don't get paid. You just write it, and you're trying to submit it places, trying to get other writing jobs maybe from it, uh, and the goal would be to get it produced as your own pilot, but... You're basically writing it on your own with nobody funding you and nobody giving you any money. Actually, I wish that were the case. I was oh, I was under an overall with uh, with, oh. with with Thomas at okay. the time, and uh, and uh, you know I was I was trying to earn this uh, this money, so I was I was generating scripts and uh, and uh, got it. Okay, and actually that that's how it came to fruition. Eventually, uh, Larroquette came off of uh, Night Court, and he was looking for a writer to work with to develop his own series. So he asked for a bunch of scripts from, I guess it was from Warner Brothers. Paul Witt heard about it and slipped crossroads into the pile of scripts that John was going to read. John read it and said, I, I, I want to do this. This is the show I want to do. So two years after I wrote it, uh, it became uh, it became a series. Incredible. A yeah. very successful series. Yeah. Um, there's so many things. It got I, turned down first by uh, by Jeff Sagansky at CBS, who I later worked with. It was really interesting because I was so proud of this script. I thought this is the best goddamn thing I've ever written. Jeff and Sagansky was the president of CBS. He was the president the of CBS at the time, and we sent it to Jeff. I had pitched it to him, uh, even though I already had the script. And I sent him the script on a Friday, Paul and Tony. We had already hired a casting director. That's how confident we were. And Jeff called on Monday morning. He said, listen, I read the script and uh, I hate it. So I laughed. I thought he was kidding, right? I said, oh, yeah, right. He said, no, no, I really, really hate it. And I'm not going to make you jump through hoops. I'm not going to give you notes and make you go through the whole process. I just want it off my desk. (laughs) 
Wow. <laughs> so Jesus Christ, can I be that wrong? You know, can it can it be off that much? And, and I guess, you know, I, I talked to him years later and it was because it was so dark. It was a dark, dark show, even though we had we averaged a six minute laugh spread on that show, which is gigantic for a half hour and what don is saying what i think if i hope i get this right a six minute laugh spread means that it's when funny you're, when you're it's, it's funny but when you're writing the material and you have 21 minutes and 30 seconds of, of space and the rest is commercials what he's saying is you're essentially only writing like 15 minutes because there's six minutes six and a half minutes of laughter in between the jokes yeah but it was it was it was a dark show i, I remember when i was writing it i was at the del mar fair and i was I was taking my kids there and there was a ride and on the on the ride there was a sign that said this is a dark ride and I thought god damn that's poetry that is that's just fucking great so I had that's the only thing that that Hemingway had was this sign that said this is a dark ride and he hung it on this bare office in in the bus station and and uh, Liz Torres played the Mahalia the woman who had been there through and there was a there was an outline of a dead body of the previous manager on the floor. <laughs> and she walked in and she said, what's with the sign? And he said, oh, I got it at a carnival when I was a kid. It's it's kind of my philosophy. I think there should be one of those hanging at the end of the birth canal. <laughs> well, that's, you know, I, I remember writing that line and I put the pen down and I thought, God damn, I should stop right now because it's just never going to get better than this. I'm never going to write anything better than this. And uh and uh, the whole show had that tone, you know, Shy McBride was the janitor who wouldn't go in the men's room because it was so hideously filthy in there. He wouldn't clean. He wouldn't clean the place up. There was a guy living in a phone booth and there was the hooker. There was Gigi Rice played an actual hooker. You know, uh, the, the scene was a guy com, comes up to her and he says, uh, what will it take? Uh, what'll, what'll, what does it take to, to go out with a girl like you? And she says, three hundred dollars. And he says, what would it take to go out with me for nothing? And she said, a rip in the fabric of time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this was not typical network sitcom stuff. So, you know, in hindsight, I think Jeff may have been right. It wasn't uh, it wasn't suited for CBS. Oh, shit. And Don, you know, I know that you have a lot of time and I just I, I, I have so much I want to ask you. So I'm, I guess what I'm going to do is sort of like a, a sort of a word association. I'm going to mention oh, I'm going to mention some people and maybe you could say something, a little something about each one. Maybe there's something that happened or whatever, or maybe there's just how you felt about them or whatever. And there's so many people you've been involved in. So share. Well, shares, you know, first of all, when when I got hired to do that special, George Slaughter hired Alan and I to do that special. I thought Cher was the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, I thought she was just the hottest thing on two legs. Um, and she also introduced me to my wife, coincidentally. Um, um, wow. On, on, we met on that show. I, I remember that, too. I remember that moment. We were in a building on Beverly Boulevard, and I looked out the window, and a 1940 Chevrolet pulled up across the street, and this woman got out with white hair, but she wasn't old, about 5'11". She was wearing a Margaret Howell brown sweater and McKean jeans, and she crossed the street, and I said, this is this is, this is is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, and turned out to be uh, the woman I married. She was a friend of Cher's. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, so I have fond memories of Cher. We saw her recently, not not too long ago. We went out. And, she lives on the Pacific Coast. Yeah, Highway, we spent right? the night to, at her at the mansion. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yes. I pass it every day. Yeah, yeah it's quite a quite a giant. Anyway, we we had a I had a great time with Cher. It was fabulous. That first year we had people like David Bowie on the show and, you know, a lot of a lot of musical acts that that I had dreamt about, people I dreamt about meeting. David Bowie had an assistant who showed up wearing a dress that was completely transparent. She was totally naked under the dress and she was his assistant. Oh, what would you like for lunch? And she's walking around. She, yeah, she's completely naked. It was it was fascinating. I remember a conversation I had with him about Bruce Springsteen because uh, I was a big Springsteen fan and and he had just heard uh, um, New York City Serenade and uh, he was we were talking about that song and we spent the whole week with him. It was a fascinating time. We also worked with Captain Kangaroo and Dion DiMucci. So great mix. Carol yes. O'Connor. Carol O'Connor, I only met the night that they were shooting my show, um, uh, the episode that, that I wrote. Uh, so I don't really have any memories of him. I have memories of that day. In those days, the show used to, shows used to be done twice, once in the afternoon and once at night. And we went to the afternoon show, and it was so bad that I called my relatives and said, don't come to the show at night. It was because it didn't get any laughs at all. That night, it killed. It was the same show, a couple of jokes tweaked, but the audience was so different, the energy was so different in the afternoon from the nighttime show that... Uh, that uh, a lot of my relatives missed a really good show. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore. Again, Mary, uh, you know, I met her briefly. I, I was more struck by uh, Grant Tinker and uh, Jim Brooks and Alan Burns, the people who, you know, who I aspired to be. The you creators know. of the show. Yeah. I mean, geez, talk about talent. They're titans. They're giants, you know, and Grant Tinker was was just the coolest executive I ever met because he said, you know, I don't get involved in what you do. I hire you to do what you do. And I and he never gave notes or anything like that. He just allowed the creative people to be creative. It's a it's an interesting concept that seems to have been lost. As Michael Wright from TBS said at one of uh, his speeches, he said, what I try to do is hire great people and get out of the way. Yeah, well, it's good advice. No one's listening to that advice, but Red Fox. What can I tell you? Red Fox was uh, he was a he was a big influence on my life because he opened the door to uh, to the half hour. But you know, personally, Red was an, an enormously funny guy, and enormously quirky. You know, he had a Saint Bernard that was that was trained to attack white people. It was really bizarre. <laughs> I don't know if he was trained to attack white people, but. He only attacked white people. <laughs> so every time I would go over to Red's house, he'd have to put the dog away. <laughs> he was a, he was a delightful, uh, a delightful, crazy character. You know, he had no regard for the future. He kind of lived in the moment. Aaron Spelling. Well, Aaron Spelling gave us our, our first pilot. I remember he had a bungalow at 20th Century Fox. We why never bungalow. His office was bigger than my house. You know, and I was struck by that. I was struck by the opulence and the elegance of the man. He had style. You know, he was uh, he was impressive. Uh, he, 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 gravitas, I guess. You know, uh, very very elegant, very encouraging, and uh, and he was working with Len Goldberg at the time, and uh, it was uh, he was one of those people where you say, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like him. A lot of people say that when they work with you. Ah, well. 
Betty White. Betty White, you know, I've worked with her several times over the years. She's she's unique and uh, and uh, and as funny as as they come. I, I I love Betty White. Of course, everybody else does too. But you know, I uh, I think she's brilliant. Damon Wayans. Damon Wayans is still one of my best friends in the world. Against all odds, you know, when when Damon Wayans was looking for somebody to do a show with, um, everybody I know called me and said. Don't go near this guy's a fucking lunatic. Stay away from him. He's crazy. And uh, and and I thought, well, how crazy can he be? You know, I mean, so I I called him and uh, and we played golf together. We went over to Lakeside and I loved him. I thought he was funny. I thought he was charming. I, I still do. I thought he was, you know, intelligent and and quick. And uh, and I made him a promise. I said, look. You're going to meet all kinds of writers. You're going to meet all kinds of people. I will promise you this. If you work with me, I will never lie to you. And I never did. And we based our relationship on that. And uh, and if it weren't for him, uh, oh God, he changed my life in a major way. When we started that show in the early days, um, he was not pleased with the direction the show was going because of the notes we were getting from uh, the network. There were a lot of notes and they were all well-intentioned, but he he didn't like notes. Uh, so I said, look, I'll get you the show that you want, but they're going to try to fire me. So you have to have my back. So he said, okay, I do. And I said, and they won't come to you directly. They'll come to you through somebody else. And so I pretty much negotiated my way through the notes and, and ignored most of them and gave Damon the, the episodes that he wanted in the beginning. And someone who will remain unnamed came to Damon and said, you know, you got to get rid of Don. The network doesn't like him. And Damon said, well, if Don goes, I go. And the show went on the air and it was a hit and we stayed there for nearly six years. Fantastic. Always nice when somebody has your back. Yes, it's not common. Now, this is a unique thing that I remember, and you're going to give me your perspective on it. I, this is what's what's so great about you is the navigation. You always seem to figure out the navigation. And there was another executive producer on that show, David Hemelfarb. Yeah, David. Yeah, sure. David, put, David said, Damon, meet Don. Yeah. And whatever his role was on it, only you guys knew, but for the rest of the world, they see the names on the screen. Right. But true to form, however it was, David Hemelfarb wasn't able to figure out the navigation to last the six years. Well, it, it was it was a complicated place. You know, Damon, uh, Damon is a complicated guy, you know, like a lot of very talented people. And, and he wanted people around him that that he knew. Uh, on a personal basis, um, and he was it was hard to get to know him. It would be hard for David to get to know Damon personally. You know, he he wanted to always surrounded himself with family. Damon did so. We had a lot of Wayans on that show. You know, there were a lot of a lot of family on that show, but it created a family atmosphere um, uh, that I loved. I I, thought I had the best time, one of the best times of my life on that show. And there just wasn't room for everybody. That's 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 all it amounted to. And when you're in that situation and there's somebody who you've worked with who you might not have made that decision. Right. How do you handle that? You know, Barry, I, I, I found that it's real simple if you tell everybody the truth. You know, uh, it's 
that's kind of been my philosophy. But sometimes there's three sides to every story. Yeah, but I can only tell my side, you know, and 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 I don't, you know, I, I've never run across anybody that I've really hated, you know. I mean, even most of the people at this level got here and deserve some degree of respect. You know, uh, David Himmelfarb did a wonderful thing for me and Damon in introducing us and bringing us together. Um, and, and, you know, staffs morph over the years and and who has input uh, and who doesn't changes um, on every show. They're they're living things. They're kinetic. You know, they they, they move around and you you have complicated relationships and personalities. It's it's hard to juggle all of that. You got to kind of uh, and like, keep an even keel. And like in that situation, I get it. But like you went back to going back to Gleason. Yeah. I say there's three sides to every story. There's only your story. Well, your story about the monologue didn't matter. Whatever your story was about the five weeks you worked and whatever it was in the bathroom didn't matter because Jackie Gleason was the guy whose opinion mattered. That's right. That's right. And And your side of the story is, hey. I was a great fucking writer. I gave him gold. And he says that I'm not a great monologue writer and I didn't give him one joke that was gold in his actions. Yeah, I never looked at it that way. I thought it was funny. I really thought it was funny. I think, God damn, you know, five weeks, he can't pick one fucking joke. You know, I thought it was kind of a, a display of, of power. Uh, maybe arrogance on his part, but but I, I thought it was kind of funny. You know, it gave me some great stories. You know, the, the secret to kind of survival here is to stop taking things personally, you know, and try to look at the big picture. You know, the big picture often isn't about you. Um, uh, and, and we have a tendency, those of us who are artistically bent to, to personalize everything, you know, Jackie Gleason said, fuck you to me. Well, he didn't. That's not what he was doing. He, he may have thought that we got too much show. You know, we don't need a monologue. That's, uh, the point is you can't, you can't take that kind of stuff to heart. You won't last. Great advice. Alan Alda. Alan Alda is, you know, is, is one of my favorite people in the world. We share a birthday. We, we have the same birthday, and uh, every year he sends me a card and reminds me of how old I am. Sends you a handwritten card. Yeah, that's right. That's right, he does. Which and is a dying art, which we talked about earlier before this podcast, because I'm a big uh, letter writer and uh, a card writer, and it seems to be a dying art, And uh, but hopefully uh, most people won't let it die. Well, I want to remind Alan that he's older than I am. So. <laughs> Milton Burl. <laughs> Well, I told you this story where Hugh Wedlock said, you know, if Milton likes you, he'll, he'll show you his cock. And I thought, what? You know, I'm a kid writer out here. I'm thinking, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, Milton has this enormous schlong and he likes to show it off if, if, he, if he thinks, you know, you're, you, 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 he likes you. So I said, what, uh, what do you cut to? We're doing the gladiator sketch, right? So it's uh, before the gladiator sketch, and Milton wants to see you in the dressing room, right? So not just me, it's uh, me and, and the, uh, the writers. He wants to see the writers because I guess he liked the sketch. So we go in there, he's got a cigar in his mouth. He's got a, he's got a shirt on and pants, and there's a dresser there with, a, with a, a gladiator suit. And while he's talking to us about certain jokes. Male or woman dresser? Uh, male. While he's talking to us, it was the guy who designed Elvis's outfits, the big eagle stuff and the capes can't think of it. Bill Blue, I think is his name. Um, while he's changing, he gets completely naked and uh, and and there he was in uh, all his Milton Berle glory. And was the rumor true? 
Yes. Oh, yes. The rumor was true, yeah. So yeah. he was not only a shower, but also a grower. Good. Well, I don't know about the growing part, but <laughs> that would actually border on frightening. Is that the only talent that showed you their penis throughout your career? As far as I recall, yeah. I don't think that hasn't that hasn't been, yes, was thankfully. Dave, was David Bowie's assistant the only woman who showed you her uh, her goods? Well, uh, you know, sh- this was a this was a time of uh, of uh, of uh, people expressing themselves in various ways and this is the mid 70s when that happened and uh yeah, she's the only one who walked around naked as as far as I can recall. Bob Hope. Bob Hope was you know, Bob Hope I, I I met a couple of times never professionally, I met him socially and uh uh, at Lakeside at the at the golf club that I was a member of and he was a member of and I would see him around there and the thing that struck me about, about Bob Hope was his attitude he always he was always humming or singing a song or whistling every time that I saw him now that might not, not have been true at home I don't know but he was always you know how you doing there buddy you know he was a he was a positive guy Steve Allen. Steve Allen uh, uh, is another one who was I only met on the periphery. I worked with one of his sons who was an executive at CBS for years. But uh, the only thing that I have to say about Steve Allen is I'm very happy he fired Bernie Kukoff and Jeff Harris. Otherwise, my life would be very different. Chris Rock. Ah, the towering genius. I love Chris Rock. I had a job there. My job was to sit around with Chris Rock and listen to Chris Rock stories. This was my job for three years. It was astounding. You know, Chris would come to town and I would pick his brain for stories, you know, because because Ali Leroy was running that show and I was basically generating stories. Was a podcast guest here as well. Uh, Ali was. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. So I got I got to to hang around with Chris Rock and, and listen to him. Talk about his life and talk about what was going on in the news. I remember when the Michael Vick thing went down, right? When he, when, when Michael Vick was, I don't know, was doing drowning dogs or something. And, uh, and Chris and I were having lunch that day in the commissary. And I said, you know, there's, there's not enough punishment for this guy. You know, I hate this guy. I cannot understand how anybody would do this. He said, Chris said, that's because you're not black. He said, black people have a different relationship with dogs. He said, during the Underground Railroad, the dogs are going, they're under the stairs. <laughs> right? And this is just off the top of his head. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, the guy thinks in a way that I wish I could. Ashton Kutcher. He's, he's wonderful. I love Ashton Kutcher. I, I would like to work with Ashton Kutcher every day for the rest of my life. He's terrific. Stepped into a really difficult situation. You know, Which is when, one of the situations, again, that almost never works. No, this doesn't work. When you work, replace man. a person in a show, yeah. Yeah. It, it never works. It's, it's yes, it's, it's very difficult for it to work. Um, Why do you think it works? Why did this one work? Yes. Well, this worked because of the combination of, of... Now, did you come in right when the change happened? I was there with Charlie the year before. So I was there so throughout you, the whole thing. Yeah. So you went through the whole thing. So yeah. dealing with talent all through your career, was that the most difficult and challenging situation you ever were in your life? Well, yes and no. You know, uh, it's funny when you look at this from the outside, you think, God, it must have been horrible there. 
And it wasn't. You know, Charlie Sheen was very, very professional. I never saw Charlie Sheen not show up. I never saw him throw any kind of temper tantrum. I never saw him object to material. I just never saw it. Uh, my observation, his relationship with Chuck was was Chuck Laurie, who's Chuck the Laurie, of the show, was cordial. And uh, when this whole thing went down, I was I was as stunned as anyone. But now, physically, Charlie didn't look good in those first weeks. You know, I don't know what he was doing, but but you know was, that uh, you know in your business, there's no such thing as all of a sudden. No, I mean Charlie Charlie Sheen was hired for being Charlie Sheen. You know, everybody knew who Charlie was when he got on board and Charlie has remained consistent. He's he is the same guy. He's not going to he's not going to pretend to be somebody else. And the character on the show was Charlie Sheen. You know, the, the he was playing basically a version of of himself. So I, I Charlie remained the same throughout. Um, he just had some, I think, chemical imbalances that uh, that caused an implosion. And uh, so you're there when the decision-making is happening. We have to make a decision. We have to make yeah. a change here. We have to do something. You're there with the network executives. Uh, it's a never-before-seen kind of thing where you have the number one show on television. Millions and millions of dollars are at stake. <laughs> advertising dollars, probably in syndication, and if it goes a second cycle, it could be a total of a billion dollars in syndication for both 100-episode cycles. Big decisions. You're there in the room when they're deciding, okay, we're going to have to make the change and take him out and put somebody else in. When they were doing that, was there like a short list of people that you met with, or was it always... Let's go to Ashton Kutcher. No, there were there were other people considered. You know, at the time, before any of us had thought of Ashton, um, Ashton, you know, was making movies at the time. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't the first name that I thought of, or that anybody thought of. Uh, Les Moonves thought of Ashton Kutcher, and uh, and um, when Chuck went over and met with Ashton the first time, it was kismet. You know, it was it was. Perfect. And he, he was met, the perfect and, guy. And he met with several people before he met with Ashton. I I, I think he, he, he met with a couple of actors, yeah. Got it. Yeah. But but nothing ever really happened. You know, there was an idea to bring in uh to bring in a, a different actor and have him play some kind of con man and uh he buys the house and he lets Alan stay there, you know. Um, there were all kinds of things that we knocked around, but Ashton really was the, the key. And you, you, this is a situation again, you're, you're well into your career and you've never been in the situation. Before. Nobody was ever in that situation. I don't think. And you had the, the right star of the show and you had to write a new show, your first show with Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. What was the philosophy that you had with Chuck to, 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 to write that first show, to explain to the audience what's going on? Well, it was, I, I just watched it last week because we shot the last episode of Two and a Half Men last Friday night. Um, and we, we showed that episode, Ashton's first, first episode. And um, it was Charlie's death, you know, Charlie's funeral. And Alan brings the ashes home and he's about to go scatter them on the beach and, and Ashton appears at the window and he throws the urn up in the air <laughs> and the ashes float down. It's one of the greatest entrances ever. And Ashton appears through the ashes. 
uh, you know, this is the phoenix rising here. And uh, he comes into the house, and he's a guy who just attempted suicide out in front of the house, and uh, the water was too cold. And he's calling his <laughs> he's calling his wife, saying, "Will you take me back? You know, I'm gonna I'm killing myself. You know, and uh, and that's how it started. That was the beginning. It was brilliant. It was a, it was a brilliant episode. Really, really good. I I didn't write that one. Chuck did, but uh, incredible. Yeah, incredible. Mayim Bialik. Did I pronounce that right? Mayim Bialik. Mayim Bialik. I had seen her in Beaches. I had created this show called Richie, which was about a teenage boy. I wanted to do Catcher in the Rye. And he had uh, he had an older brother who was a drug addict, and he had a young sister named Blossom. And his father was the piano player on the Tonight Show band. That evolved because I was in Florida at... Dion DiMucci from Dion and the Belmonts. It was his 50th birthday party. And I went down there and he was a friend of mine from the share show days. Everything's connected. And I went down there. He invited me to the party. I went to the party. The next day I'm sitting around the house. He lives in this you know, house in a nice little neighborhood. Got a station wagon, got three kids. And he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I thought, God damn, this is a different kind of dad, right? Why don't we have a dad like this? on tele- All the dads on television were like my dad. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if he had a dad who was hip, right? So it didn't actually evolve that way, but we ended up there. Anyway, I wanted a dad who was musical. So I wrote this show and I pitched it to Brandon Tartikoff. I didn't write it. I pitched it. President of NBC. President of NBC at the time. He said, yeah, let us talk about it. He had two assistants at the time, um, Jamie Tarsus and Leslie Lurie. Jamie Tarsus uh, became the president of ABC later on and now runs her own company and has uh, a number of shows on the air. And Leslie Laurie is married to Cliff Gilbert Laurie, the uh, the fabulous entertainment lawyer. That's right. Okay, so I pitched the show. I get on a plane. I go to Hawaii, right? I'm in Hana. I'm on the beach at Hana, Hamoa Beach. It all comes together, doesn't it? There's a phone in the Beach Boy shack there because there were no cell phones. There's no cell reception there. So I said, you got a phone call, Stephen, Stephen Sinensi, Stephen Boy Sinensi was the, was the lifeguard. He calls me, he says, you got a phone call. So I get on the phone, it's Leslie Lurie. Mm-hmm. She says, Don, uh, we've been kicking around, you know, your idea for uh, the show about Richie. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, why don't you make it about the girl, about Blossom and make the Richie character, you know, like a younger brother or a different brother or whatever. And the first thing I thought of was, God damn, I can steal every episode of the Wonder Years and no one will know it. <laughs> so here What a brilliant idea. So here you're saying something again that shocks me. First, it's the typewriter. Yeah. Yes. And then you go through with the other thing where you're doing the, you know, the kind of the shaky thing. And now yes. you're doing this. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was it was it was apparent. You know, uh, the, the stories were about coming of age stories, you know, and stories are the hardest thing. Stories are everything in this business. And I thought, wow, you know, through the eyes of a girl, those stories, those basic stories would be different. But you have the basic stories. Well, it's not just the wonder years. I mean, there, you know, you go back through the no. history of literature, a coming of age story with a girl was not on television. So, uh, so I wrote the pilot and we went looking f- to cast it and, uh, and y- you know, we came down to two girls, Maya Bialik and this other girl who was, I don't know what her name was, but she was a pretty little girl from in the mold of the Disney characters and, uh, Brandon, they both read and Maya was brilliant. And, uh, Brandon said, well, what do you think? And I said, uh, I, th- I said, I think, uh, Maya Bialik, you know? And he said, you know, she's not really like a T. She doesn't look like a TV star. I said, she looks like the audience. And uh, 
And that was the key, you know, that that she she was a real girl. She was a real person. She wasn't some made up little pixie. You know, she had she had uh, she had uh, uh, issues that the audience had. And, and this is what was unique about Brandon Tartikoff, which is uh, you, you talk about a style of management. Yeah. Normally, when you're in a test and the actors go on, the executive producers turn to the president and say, what do you think? Yes. Brandon Tartikoff turns to the talent, the executive producer, the creator, and says, what do you think? That's right. And that's the difference in his style of management, which I know you've been through this many, many times. I've outlived all of them, Barry. (laughs) (laughs) And now she's on the number one show on television. Does it surprise you that after like a... I think an 18-year hiatus in the business. Well, she, she took was... a hiatus and became a doctor. You know, she is, she has the credentials of the character she plays on The Big Bang Theory. she got a PhD in brain science. I don't even understand so what the hell she does. So it doesn't surprise you that she could come back like God, that? God, no. She was brilliant. The day I met her was a, a day in February. It was raining. It was in Paul Witt's office. She also was wearing a... A rain slicker and a, a funny hat. And a see-through dress? No. <laughs> she was 12. <laughs> Although, I, I, did, I, tell, I, tell this, I tell this story. They, they did a night somewhere with, uh, with showrunners and stars, right, of shows. And they asked Maya and I to speak. So I wrote this thing and I said, what do you think? Should we do this? And she said, yeah, oh, absolutely. It's funny. So, so we get up on stage together. And I say, I remember when I met Maya Bialik, you know, she was and I'm standing next to me as I'm telling this story. I said she was some precocious kid. I had seen her in beaches. She played a young Bette Midler, and and I thought, you know, I want to I want to meet with her and talk to her one on one. You know, I don't want any managers or sorry, Barry, I don't want any <laughs> managers or agents. You know, and I and I don't want I don't want to be influenced by her parents. So she came to my office over at Wit Thomas. And we went into the room and I closed the door and I started talking to her and I said, so what do you think? You want to do this? She said, if I don't get this part, I'm going to tell people you touched me. (laughs) So so I said, I knew I had found the star (laughs) at that moment. Now, of course, that did not happen. Let me make it clear that this was something that Maya and I wrote together to uh, to for this occasion. That's so fantastic. Well, first. Bruce Springsteen, yes. talk about him a little bit, and then I want you to talk about your meeting Clarence Clemens in your book, which is entitled, I believe, Big Man. Big Man, yes. And, oh, uh, the, the stories are overlap. I was doing the Share show, and uh, uh, we had gotten the, the gig to do the show. It's 1975. It's the spring of 1975, and I was a fan of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Uh, coming from New England. They weren't nationally known yet. Bruce was not on the cover of Time and Newsweek yet. That happened later that year. And Columbia Records was providing a lot of artists to be on the show. And one of them was this guy, Bruce Springsteen. And they sent me a copy of Born to Run, an album called Born to Run, which was going to come out in two months. So I went home and I played it and I thought, this is pretty good. So I called uh, Columbia Records. I said, I'd like to put Bruce and the band on the show. And they said, great. You know, here's his manager's number. And I called his manager. It was a guy named Mike Appel. And I called Mike. And I introduced myself. I said, I want, uh, I want to put Bruce on the show, Bruce and the band on the show. And he said, we're not going to do television for 10 years. And I said, what, are you kidding me? I said, Mike, you know, I, I love Bruce, but nobody really knows who he is. He said, oh, they will. 
So I said, wow. Okay. So you're just, it's a flat no. He said, it's a flat no. He said, I, you know, we're going to play the Roxy in the fall. He said, you can come by, come by and hang out, you know, meet the band, meet the guys. The Roxy on Sunset Boulevard. Yes. And uh, that fall, I went over to the Roxy Theater and I met uh, Bruce and I met Clarence and Clarence and I became friends. We lost touch with each other, got reunited and, uh, and decided to write a book together. And he was one of your best friends. He became probably my closest friend. Yeah. So I know this is impossible for you, but pretend all the stories in that book are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one. What's the one you want to tell our audience? Oh man, I don't know. There's a couple of things in, in that book that, that resonate with me. There's, there's one chapter called the river, which is about Clarence's relationship to music it's only two and a half pages, but it, it's evocative of who the guy was. Um, and there's also a story about playing nine ball in Cuba with Fidel Castro and Hunter Thompson, which is really a good story. Any abbreviated Reader's Digest story you want to tell our audience? Well, so they can pick up this book. Yeah, uh, uh, you know that ought to do it. But you know what? <laughs> what what happens in that in that story is that Hunter Thompson puts uh, some LSD in uh, in Fidel Castro's bodyguard's drink <laughs> and uh, leaves Clarence alone with Fidel, and they start playing for serious money, while Hunter takes this tripping. Uh, 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 security guard to a nightclub uh, and they end up uh, involved uh, with weapons and <laughs> and uh, serious drugs. <laughs> it ends on it with a boat full of lesbians. <laughs> so they did not listen to Slappy White. They took the hard drugs. Yeah, no, they took the hard drugs. Yeah, they took drugs that uh, I've never heard of. Your biggest disappointment in show business and what you did to turn it around into a positive and get to the next point in your career. Well, you know, that that probably is is the, the Larroquette show. Um, the, the moment that, that Jeff Sagansky turned that down cold, not only turned it down, loathed it. <laughs> he was unequivocal in his in his criticism of it. He just thought it was terrible. That really shook me to my core because I thought it was brilliant. You know, I thought I, I had I had I had I had found the golden ring, right? Um, I thought it was a great, great script, and uh, that was a sobering moment. You know, that was that was pretty startling, and I just never stopped believing that it was good. I, I, I what I did mentally was, well, Jeff's not familiar with. The world of Tom Waits. He doesn't know what the references are here. He doesn't get it. He literally doesn't get it because of who he was and what his experience, his life experience was. And he was essentially not wrong, but misinformed. He was unable to see the brilliance <laughs> that existed here. Um, and, and that's how I kind of rationalized it in my head. Um, and that enabled me to go on. There is somebody out there who's going to recognize this. There's somebody who's going to know that the, these references are going to know who Tom Waits is. And, uh, and I got I just got to find that person. Your proudest moment in show business might be the same one. You know, it, it might be that moment. I, I don't have a proudest moment. You know, I, I rarely do this and sit around and look back. I'm very, very interested in what I'm going to do next. 
that's kind of occupies most of my thinking these days, except for moments like this when I get to tell stories to to, to young writers and, and people like you. I don't do this. I don't spend a lot of time looking back. It's, uh, you know, Satchel Page said something might be gaining on you. I, I believe that's true. You know, the, the clock is ticking and I want to create something great. I want to do something better than anything that I've done before. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to my greatest moment. I don't think I've hit it yet. So just as an insertion here, what you're talking about, what always surprises me about you, you're an incredibly successful guy. For those of you who don't know out there in the world, just a minimum wage writer who gets a gig on a show makes $4,137 a week. That's a person who just walked off the boat so without getting into the amount of money that Don Rio makes, he makes an enormous amount of money per episode, probably more money per episode than the average American makes in a year. And so what I don't understand, Don, is that you've worked so many shows and you've done so well, yet you continue to, instead of keep going out every year and and with your own show and concentrating on your own show, you take the gig, you take the money, you take the existing job that's already plug and play, you bring your spin to it, you make it a hit and you continue it as a hit, but you take focus away from that next extraordinary thing. Now you might say, well, Barry, I can do multitask. I can do this and that, but I know, and I believe in my heart that, you're the kind of guy that if you really did focus all your energy on creating that slate of things where, hey, this is the Don Rio company and we're going out with five things this year and I'm going to do a deal with this young writer to work on this with me here. I'm doing a deal with this young writer here to do this sort of like Michael Patrick King did with Whitney Cummings. I'm not going to go off on my own. I'm going to do my own thing. I'll get Whitney to do this, create this with me and I'll do that. And then I'll have my own company and it'll be all going out like that. But instead you continually take the gig with the geniuses in the plug-and-play situation. Why is that? Well, I think you're describing what you would do, not what I would do. I'm not that ambitious. I don't want to run a business. What the, You know, it's interesting. When I took the job with Chuck uh, at Two and a Half Men, I did it because I wanted someplace to go. I found out that when I stayed home, people talked to me. You know, people would come to the house and talk to me. The gardener would talk to me, you know, and I, I, I'm really not interested in talking to anyone who's not in show business. <laughs> well, I'm honored you're talking to me. <laughs> That's right. You know, I wanted someplace to go where I could I could be in the mix with in the room. I, I love being in the room. And and I was in the room with with geniuses. I'm in the room with, you know, with 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 Chuck Lorre and, and, and Eddie Gordetsky and Jim Patterson and Don Foster and and Lee Aronson and David Richardson and, and Susan Beavers. That that was an incredible room. I walked into that room and I didn't I didn't speak for the first two or three weeks. I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to say. Where did I fit in? What do I play? It was like it was like you suddenly became another guitar player with the Beatles, you know? Well these guys seem to be playing pretty well. I you know I know how to play this but I can't figure out, you know, where do I jump in here? It took a while. It was exciting. And, and 
I'm more interested in that than, you know, building an empire. I, I, I really don't want to do that. I like to do one project a year. I like to do a pilot outside of a daily gig. And if it becomes a series, great. Then it's then it's my gig. But uh, I want to I want to be in the mix. I want to be involved. I want to be stimulated by other writers. You know, I want to uh, I want to work. Why do you think it is, you know, in music, because you reference music all the time, you'll have the greatest artists like Tony Bennett do duets with different great, great artists. Why don't great showrunners collaborate together to create something? Why is it always a great showrunner and a young writer? Why isn't like, why isn't Don Rio and Phil Rosenthal getting together and taking their experience of syndicated shows and creating a show together where they go out and people say, we have to buy this show. Why does that never happen? I don't know. You know, if you, you put me together with Phil, you know, maybe we can make this happen. I, I will do sure. that, and I will set up that meeting next week. <laughs> but you know Spoken like a true manager. But you know what you I'm know, saying? I, like I, I, like... I, think, I, I think that, you know, oh, well, Chuck is actually doing that. I mean, Chuck Chuck hires people my age, and he hires people in their 20s, you know? But to create the show to, together? Well, it's possible, you know, he and Eddie and Gemma Baker, brand new writer Gemma Baker, created Mom. Um uh, she was she was brand new, but Eddie had been around for a long, long time. You know, Eddie is is a show business legend. Um, so, do you think it's, it's because it's, they don't want to share the credit and the money? No, I, I don't think that's it. It's it's kind of like dating. You know, you find somebody that you're simpatico with, that you connect with. You know, uh, uh, on a comedic level and on a social level, and you want to you want to be with them. You know, some people stimulate you other than more than others. You know, this the business itself is interesting to me. You know, the, I think of show business as a circus tent. It's a giant circus tent that's on a piece of surreal estate and 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 it's self-contained and people come from everywhere. People hear the calliope and they're drawn to it. And they, I don't care if you're from Harvard or from Harlem or from both, you hear that song and you're drawn to it the way lemmings are drawn to the ocean, the, the way drunks are drawn to the bottle. You know, you you have to go there. You have to... you. you you, we're an invasive species. We're, we're like, you know, like the song says, we're like buckthorn and uh, and tamarack. We cannot be stamped out. And in the end, you're either in the tent or you're out of the tent. That's fantastic. All right. Last question. What advice do you have for the uh, young executive or young writer or person living in a small town in Rhode Island or wherever it is? who wants to get to the next level and then have the kind of career that you have as a writer, creator, showrunner. And then also, since you work with so many amazingly brilliant talents, what advice do you have for the young artist who's starting out to be able to get to the next level, like Slappy White or like Cher or Chris Rock or, you know, all these people you've worked with? Well, I think I think my my advice is be brilliant, you know, be a brilliant creative talent. Um, that's who makes it. Those are the people who succeed. Now, there are people who are lesser talents who stick around for a while, but eventually they disappear like smoke. You know, uh, 
you got to listen for the calliope and, and hope that there's space for you in the tent, that you're good enough to get in, you know, that, you, that, that you've got the goods. You know, for writers, you have to write. You have to keep writing. It, it can't be something that you choose to do. It, it has to be something you must do. It has to be a compulsion, an obsession. Uh, you know, I always wrote from when I was a kid. You know, I, I was in the ninth grade and Mrs. Taroki said, we're going to try creative writing. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that you're one of the pilgrims and it's the night before you're leaving England for the new world. And I want you to write an essay. And pictures appeared in my head. I could see, I can see it right now. I could see this beach, this rocky beach, and there were fires, and there were boats off in the harbor, and there were people moving around, and women in long dresses and, and hats, and guys in those English, uh, you know, uh, uh, riding outfits. And, 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 and I wrote down what I saw. And the next day she said, we have someone very talented in this class, and his name is Don Rio. And I went, fuck, man. I want this every day. <laughs> I want that drug. And uh, that's how it happened for me. Wow. I'm going to break tradition. I'm going to ask you one last question, and then I'll get you out of here. Tell me your Mount Rushmore of comedy artists and your Mount Rushmore of creator executive producers. Wow. Boy, that's a tough one. Start with the executive producer creators and go with the artists. Well, you can't ignore Chuck Lorre. Chuck Lorre has done this more successfully than anyone in history. Um, he is, uh, he, I don't know how he does it. He is hands-on on four shows um, at the same time. You know, you talked about me doing two. He's doing, he, well, up until last week, was doing four. Um astounding, astounding ability to compartmentalize and to switch from one show to the next. Uh, and in that same genre, I think you have to put uh, Norman Lear. You know, Norman Lear was a titan. He changed the face of the business. He changed, he changed the world um, by doing shows about something, shows that really meant something. Um, George Slaughter. George Slaughter is one of my favorite people to walk the planet Earth. He's a, he is a giant talent and, uh, and uh, you know, gave me uh, opportunities that, uh, that did, in fact, change my life. Um, and I'm going to leave the fourth one empty. I don't know uh, who I want in that one yet. Well, maybe your face will go there. Well, maybe. Who knows? And I'd look good up there. Yes, you would. Yeah. You look good etched in stone. Yes. I feel like you're etched in stone now. Yeah, I sort of am. And comedy artists. That's so hard. There's so many. I don't know. I You know, I would have to include, um, I think, Red Fox. You know, for my personal taste, Red Fox and... and, uh, and I would, there's too many. I would put, I would put Chris Rock there. I think Chris Rock is the most brilliant monologist I have ever seen. Who's ever walked the face of the earth. Richard Pryor, you know, a gigantic genius. Um, Eddie Murphy, when he was young, you know, when he was doing stand up, was, was undeniably a genius. 
Uh, then you have the Gleasons. You know, it, it it goes back for me. You know, to like Laurel and Hardy and and people that I watched when when I was a kid who had who influenced me. Gleason. You know, in fact, when I when I watched the Honeymooners, you know, it was classic television. It was it. It connected on a on a visceral level. You're going to need a bigger mountain, in other words. You know, there's an awful an awful lot of people. Was there one of them that you know when I when I asked Bernie Brillstein about who he represented? Bernie Brillstein might be up there too. Who he represented? Who was a genius? He only said one person to me, which shocked me, and he represented Belushi and Gilda Radner and and Lorne Michaels. And he only mentioned one name, Jim Henson. So for you, like, was there one person who who you work with who's like, even the people who you know, if they were sitting here in the room with you, would say, I'm great, but that guy is a genius above a genius above a genius. Who would that person be? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, you you're talking about somebody exalted to a to a godlike position, and that usually doesn't happen until you're dead, you know, because <laughs> you certainly don't want to be in competition with that person. So, uh, so I, I I think I I think rather than than give you a phony answer for that, I I think I would tell you that the people who have impressed me the most are the ones that I've mentioned. You know, uh, George and 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 Norman and 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 even. Chuck currently, I mean, people who have done things that I look at and I say, I couldn't do that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I have confidence in, in my abilities, but they've done things that I say, I, I, I couldn't do that. I could not, I wouldn't know how to do that. And, and for me, that, that, that raises them to a level that's above most other people. Um, they've impressed me. Well, Don Rio, what you just said, if I could internalize that and repeat it back to you, that's what you are to me. Ah. Somebody who I just can't imagine ever being able to do what you do. I can't imagine ever being able to handle the situations you've handled. And if I could steal your words, you impress me. And I am so grateful that you came today. And it means so much to me. And the audience is going to love this. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right. This is Industry Standard with Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortunate thing.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.